Good morning, everyone, and welcome to part five of our studies in Daniel chapter seven. Thank you for being a part of this study, and I'd like to invite you all just to join me at this time as we pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, and give us understanding of these things, a clear understanding, we pray, God. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. One of the unique features of the Bible is that it does not hold back from giving a very honest and straightforward critique of those that God himself has called to represent him. God brings Israel of old and even Christianity of the present under a very careful scrutiny, under careful review for misrepresenting his character. When Jesus came into the world and entered upon his public ministry, God's people, according to the biblical records, crucified God when God came to them in the flesh. Scripture itself testifies to this fact. He came unto his own people. The Messiah came to the people of the Messiah, the nation that he was prophesied to be born in. Christ came to Israel, whose prophets had received the prophecies of the Messiah coming to this world from many hundreds of years earlier. They had received it coming to the very ones who should have been anticipating his arrival. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The very ones who were ordained to usher in the Messiah's public ministry were the very ones who ended up crucifying God in the flesh when God came. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we discover that the Apostle Paul himself foretold that the same thing would happen within Christianity. That the movement that was founded by Christ and carried on by the apostles would come to a crossroads in the road and choose to go the wrong way. Notice what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. And this is prophetic. Paul, while he's alive and he's preaching and teaching and interacting with the people, he knows that his days are numbered. He's growing old. He knows that he will probably face persecution and martyrdom. The Apostle Paul says, I know that after my departure, in other words, after I die, when my ministry and my life is over, he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves. Some versions say grievous wolves or fierce wolves. This was a metaphor a figure of speech for false teachers whom he warns will come in and lead the Christian church down the wrong road. Savage wolves was the phrase which the beloved apostle used for human beings who will be masquerading as those who represent and speak for God. And these, he says, will come in and they will not spare the flock. But also, notice verse 30, and notice the language used. It says, also from among yourself, in other words, from right within the church, he says, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things and draw disciples or followers after them. So the apostle prophesied that after his death, false teachings, false doctrines would be brought into the church to corrupt the Christian church and lead away many down the wrong path. He is saying, we have far more to fear from those within the church than from those on the outside. That is what the apostle is saying. 
So the greatest danger to the church is false teachers within the church. And Paul foretold it. There would be those who would rise up preaching, teaching, and peddling things that are perverse, he says, in contrast to the true gospel of Christ, and they will turn people away from the truth. This is a brief prophetic word from the Apostle Paul. But in his second letter to the Thessalonian church, 2 Thessalonians, he gave more detail in one of the most amazing prophecies of the apostolic era that pointed forward to what would take place in church history. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice verse 3 carefully. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that is, the day of the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, then the final judgment and all that, he says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless there is a falling away first. In other words, the falling away comes before Christ returns. Many people tell you that, oh, Christ is going to come secretly and then there's going to be a falling away and Antichrist will show up at that time. No, the apostle says the development of Antichrist will come from a falling away of Christianity. When it becomes corrupted, it will be developing through history. And this is fascinating, dear friends, because the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle is foretelling here that there will be a falling away from the truth. And the language here used in the Greek for falling away is apostasia. And this is where we get the English word apostasy from. But then this apostasy will involve a turning away from the provisions of important truth that God has given for the church through all times. And he makes it clear that it will be an inside job. One that is so diabolical, so shocking to the conscience that the Apostle Paul describes this falling away with this language. The man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This difference has caused many believers to depart from the church, professing to be atheists or unbelievers. Because they said, if this is what God's church on earth looks like, I want nothing to do with it. Millions have turned their backs on God because of what they've seen labeled as Christianity by this false system. This is an inside job from within the parameters of that which is called Christianity, a false Christianity. After the apostles all died, there were compromises occurring within, and this thing reached its climax in what historians sometimes refer to as the Constantinian shift in AD 312. The Apostle Paul prophesied during the first century, then he was eventually taken to Rome as a prisoner and there later executed. The church went through the second century, then came to the third, and then a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine comes to power. He soon declares himself to be a Christian and made a decree that Christianity become the official religion of the empire. Prior to this, the church had been going through years of severe persecution on the previous political leaders. Then came Constantine, and the church finds itself being courted like the bride of the government. Many of the church leaders were like, we've been the persecuted minority all this time, now we've grown so large, 
that we are receiving promotion from the government. We need to move into the position that is being provided for us from the Roman emperor himself. And so the church decided Constantine is our friend. The emperor is on our side. Let us step into the position of power that he's giving to us. Now, let's back up a bit here to show how this apostasy of Christianity, as prophesied by the Apostle Paul, was fulfilled. During the first and second century, the gospel was being preached in its purity, and the power of God was seen in the fact that tens of thousands were leaving their pagan religions behind and accepting Jesus Christ. The Christian church was growing like wildfire. You should know then that the devil was not pleased. The devil wants to keep people in darkness so that they reject the truth of God and are lost. He could not have been a happy devil watching so many thousands of people leaving the religion of the heathens and accepting the message of Jesus Christ as Lord. Over and over again, working through despotic Roman emperors, and even through the Jews who had rejected the gospel. He brought persecution upon the church, the struggling Christian church, and many were being killed. Yet they remained true and steadfast to the faith, even unto death, and as a result, thousands who saw their powerful testimony of faith and calm, even on the persecution, realized that the power of God was with them and joined with them. So that which was intended to wipe out the church actually caused it to grow faster. One historian wrote, the blood of Christians was seed. He was living during that time. He said the blood of the Christians was seed. The more they mow us down, the faster we spring up. He was a Christian himself. The name of the Roman emperor who preceded Constantine was Diocletian. And Diocletian had instituted another terrible wave of persecution against the church, which lasted for 10 years from 303 to 313 AD. Thousands were being killed, and yet the church grew even more. Even members of the Roman military were laying down the sword to take up the cross of Christ. And all of this was happening during a time when the Roman Empire was dealing with a lot of internal strife and corruption. And Constantine realized that at the rate of what was happening, in a few years he may be losing many of his soldiers to Christianity. Without a strong army, you can't win wars. So this was becoming a serious problem. The devil also realized that his plan to wipe out the church by persecution was backfiring upon him. The more he killed, the numbers doubled, tripled. So he decided on a change of strategy. You know, there's a saying, if you can't beat them, then you do what? You join them. Satan's purpose was to take over the church by giving it status and position and acceptance throughout the Roman Empire. So Constantine comes to power in 313 AD, and the first thing he does is to sign a decree called the Edict of Milan officially ending the persecution against the Christian church. He then declared Christianity to be the official religion of the empire and started to give it much status in the empire. He started to give the leadership of the church high salaries paid by the government. He declared that certain high positions in the government could only be held if you declare yourself a Christian. 
the official religion of Rome prior to this was sun worship and had been so for over 200 years. Constantine realized that Christianity was spreading rapidly throughout the empire and that many previous times of persecution only seemed to make it spread faster. There had to be a change of strategy. What Constantine wanted to do was to harness the power of this rapidly spreading movement that they could not stop and merge it with sun worship, thus using this union to stabilize the Roman Empire. Many Christians today believe that Constantine was the first Christian emperor of Rome. But Constantine never left sun worship. In those days, every ruler who came to power always had coins minted with their face on it. Even in museums today, the coins that were minted during the time of Constantine show the cross of Christ on one side and the emblem of sun worship on the other side. So he was never really converted to Christianity, but was just using it for political expediency. To join sun worship and Christianity together, to unite the empire and stabilize his power and his rulership. So he started to dedicate huge sums of money to the church. He then started to take over many of the pagan temples and convert them into lavish cathedrals for the Christian church. The statues of other pagan gods which they worshipped, which were named after the planets. And these statues which were in all these pagan temples, statues of Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Pluto and, and Venus and Mercury and Apollo. The sun god was the primary god of this time and the other ones were lesser planetary gods. And Constantine had them removed, these statues of these gods removed from the temples and replaced with statues of the twelve apostles, calling them St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Matthew, St. John, St. James, and all the rest. The church gladly went along with it all. The Christian church, which before was a persecuted people, suddenly found itself in a position of authority within the Roman Empire. The church prostituted itself for position and status and authority. And that is how it came to be controlled by the Roman Empire. That is why in the book of Revelation, John was shown a woman riding upon a beast with a golden cup in her hand, filled with the wine, the false doctrines of Babylon. And she is called the mother of harlots. In other words, it was an illicit relationship an illegitimate relationship that God could not condone, a marriage between Christianity and the state. Many people who were still pagan idolaters at heart declared themselves to be Christian for the sake of opportunity, to get certain positions, because the emperor had also declared himself to be a Christian. And soon, the teachings of pagan religions started showing up in the church and becoming intermingled with the teachings of the Bible. And this was the end for the pure form of Christianity that Christ had launched and the apostles had carried forward after Pentecost. The apostle Paul had prophesied that savage wolves would come in not sparing the flock. The falling away, the great apostasy which the apostles said would happen, was now firmly in place, fulfilled. 
The church was bought and allowed itself to be sold as a prostitute. And that is why John called it a harlot in the book of Revelation. The church is called the bride of Christ. And so the true church, the faithful people of God in every age, are represented as a pure woman as is shown in Revelation chapter 12. But a corrupt church, a false church, is represented as an impure woman, which we see in Revelation chapter 17, who is called a harlot. Now, when this development was taking place during the time of Constantine, some faithful believers warned against accepting the generosity of the emperor, saying it would corrupt the church. Others disagreed. The leaders were too glad to be out of persecution and did not want it to start again. They said, we owe it to Constantine for ending the persecution. Let's do what he wants. They were only following the money. And to this day, that is what most religious leaders are following. Not Christ, but the money while calling upon Christ's name. So there was a split in the church. The majority of the leadership said, nothing is wrong with accepting the promotion of the state. Maybe we can use this opportunity to convert the whole empire. The faithful minority said, no, this will corrupt the church. We refuse to compromise. But the majority of the leadership were blinded. Blinded by the wealth that was being lavished upon the church and the status it was being given in the society by the emperor. They were opposed and so the faithful ones separated and soon had to go into hiding. Because the church now started to use the power of the state to destroy those who had disagreed and separated from it. Now the church had political power. Now the church had the state behind it backing it. Now the church could begin to accumulate massive power and wealth and to use its power and wealth to punish those who dissented. Calling those who didn't agree with what the church was doing heretics and branding them for execution. So something began to take place that would have shocked even the Apostle Paul himself if he was alive to witness the fulfillment of what he had prophesied about. The religion became institutionalized. It began to be the vessel of the state. It began to develop into Christendom, an institutionalized organization of the state that began to push Christ himself and all the beauty of the gospel outside of the church while still retaining the name Christianity. This was the development of the system of Antichrist, which the Apostle Paul prophesied would set itself up in the place of Christ, ruled over by what he calls the son of perdition, the man of sin, which in his own mind and by its own actions would exalt itself above God. Without question, this is one of the most amazing developments in history and which so few Christians know about. The Apostle John, in the first century, gave the most graphic description of this apostasy in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. This is a highly symbolic passage, but very insightful when properly understood. You will notice that John says that the church founded by Christ and the apostles began to move in a direction to position itself in relation to the Roman state. 
he says that the great harlot who sits on many waters, that means presiding over many peoples and many nations, having political power, financial gains, that the church began to engage in illicit relationships, to commit fornication, that's the word he uses, with the kings of the earth. That is symbolic fornication, symbolizing the union of church power with state power, the power of religion with the power of politics. Remember that according to the gospel of Christ, the power of the gospel is the calm and yet extremely powerful influence of the love of God, a non-coercive movement that relies on the power of God's love through the Holy Spirit to win souls to God's kingdom. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And yet we come now to that stage in church history when the non-coercive love of God begins to be bartered away, to be sold away in favor of political power and the exercise of force. But as John's prophecy in Revelation chapter 17 goes on, the language becomes even more graphic and clear. He says in verse 3, I saw a woman sitting on a beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Ah, notice how John ties us right back into what we are studying in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we see a beast having ten horns representing the Roman state, the Roman Empire. And another little horn came out of its head, which became powerful and persecuted the true people of God. Understand, dear friends, that the Bible perfectly brings all these things together so that there is certainty in the truth. God wants to make sure that we have no doubts because even now, you see a lot of things happening in the world and the vast majority of the people don't even have a clue what or who is behind it all and what it is leading up to. Understand too, dear friends, that the woman is riding the beast, which means the corrupt religion has infiltrated every government through a network of Jesuits and putting in place its final touches of its plans, which were made nearly 500 years ago, at what we mentioned in a previous study, what is known as the Council of Trent. Why do you think that even in the response to the COVID crisis, all the governments are doing exactly the same thing? Why do you think so? The Bible cannot lie. All the kings are getting their instructions from the very same source. This woman, a corrupt harlot, according to the word used in the Bible, is a corrupt church which gets in bed with the state for power and status, blaspheming the name and the character of God while claiming before the world to be representing God. Meanwhile, the true church, those who remain faithful, and refused to compromise, had to separate from her and flee into hiding to escape the sword. Verse 4 of Revelation 17 says, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and adorned or dressed with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. Revelation 17 verse 4. Language could not be more direct or more strong to communicate this apostate church system. Verse 5 says, And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, 
Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, according to this prophecy, this Babylon is a symbol for the fallen church of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century going into the Middle Ages straight through up to the end. Verse 6 of Revelation 17 says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great astonishment. John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The key ideas. The woman riding the beast is prophetic symbolism for the church controlling the state. A woman in scripture is a representation of the church. A pure woman, the bride of Christ, we see in Ephesians 5, the people of God, in right relationship to God. So the woman riding the beast is called a harlot, an impure woman, married to the state and controlling the state for its own purposes. Now, the fact that the woman is drunk, she's drunk on what? On blood. On whose blood? The blood of the martyrs, of the saints of Jesus. This is a graphic portrayal of a history that anybody can read about. This is a depiction of the fact that the church was using the power of the state, the power of the sword, the power of persecution, legislation, of law and punishment to persecute those who stood faithful, those who disagreed with its corruption of the word of God, those who disagreed with its corruption of the beautiful truths of God's character as revealed in Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable glimpse of insight into the history that unfolded from the time that John wrote this down to our present time. History estimates that over 100 million people have been slain by the Catholic Church for trying to worship God according to the freedom of their conscience. Dr. J. Dowling, the writer of the huge volumes entitled The History of Romanism, in pages 541 and 542, he states, From the birth of popery, the Pope system that is, to the present time, it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 millions of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors. An average of more than 40,000 murders for every year of the existence of popery. This was written over a century ago. Just imagine how much the numbers would be right now. Another periodical, and this is a Roman Catholic periodical. It's entitled The Western Watchman. So we're hearing from the horse's mouth right now. So it was entitled December 24, 1908. It stated, The church has persecuted. Only a novice in history will deny that. Protestants were persecuted in France and Spain with the full approval of the church authorities. We have always defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisition. In other words, what they're saying is that God has given us the divine right to persecute and to kill others because we're doing it in his name. We will close out today, dear friends, by going right back to where we started, where we ended last week, Daniel 7 verse 25. Speaking of that little horn power, which John in Revelation shows us as this harlot woman, this corrupt church riding on the beast, the Babylonish system. It says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out, that means persecute, the saints of the Most High, 
and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Next week, we will pick up right back at this very same verse, Daniel 7.25, which speaks of this power, this woman, this great little horn, which spoke great words against the Most High and wore out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And we will show the fulfillment of what Daniel writes next and get to see how John confirms in the book of Revelation also. Believe me, dear friends, when I say things are getting ready to be heating up very soon and very rapidly. There is much that will soon break upon this world, and we have to be wise, we have to be committed, devoted to God's kingdom, willing to stand for His glory, whatever the cost may be. There is a song which says, Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedom, which we all hold dear, now is at stake. Humbling our hearts to God, says from the chastening rod, Seek the way pilgrims trod. Christians, awake. Everything in the world is shaping up for a final division into two sides. And every mind will be fixed. Every case will be decided for eternal life or eternal damnation. The question is, which side will you take? The wise or the foolish? The wheat or the tares? The righteous or the wicked? Only two sides. Understand, dear friends, that each person will reveal in the end which side they were preparing to join all along. We cannot stand upon a foundation of truth unless we understand what we are standing upon. Trials are coming, which will test our character and reveal every heart, whether they are for God's side or against Him. May we now equip ourselves with the Word of God, putting our trust completely in Him, and we can rest in the assurance that He will secure us for His everlasting kingdom. The world is in upheavals, and there is no getting better in sight. Jesus is coming soon, dear friends. Make sure you are His and His entirely. May God open the eyes of his people and bless you all with understanding in these matters. Until next week, have an eye-opening week. God bless you all.